One day, my mother was taking a taxi in New York City down to the Plaza Hotel, and she was wearing her youth do fragrance. So as she got out of the cab to pay the uh, driver, he said, I know what you're wearing because all of my rich customers smell like that. They're they all wearing Estee Lauder. And she said, you know, I'm Estee Lauder. He said, yeah, and I'm Cary Grant. <laughs> and off he went. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Nordy Pod. I'm Pete Nordstrom, president of Nordstrom and your host for this podcast. Join me as I take you on an honest, authentic journey through our company and introduce you to many of the fascinating people in my life, one episode at a time. In this episode, I'm headed to New York to chat with a super talented salesperson of ours by the name of Gregory Clark to hear about his technique for successful selling. The DNA of the Nordstrom brand is relationship-based. Anyone can sell a product, but can you sell yourself to establish a lifelong relationship? But before that, I want to introduce you to a good friend of mine, industry icon and former CEO of the Estee Lauder Companies, Leonard Lauder. Folks, I cannot wait to share this conversation with you today because Leonard Lauder is one of my all-time favorite people in our industry and really a true legend. We've known each other for a long time and we've had a lot of shared history between our families. In fact, my dad's generation and Leonard's generation had a bit of a parallel track in growing really successful businesses during the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. But despite being a member of the founding family and a major player in the growth of the multi-billion dollar Estee Lauder company, Leonard's really just a humble, down-to-earth guy. Now, to give you a little context on the Estee Lauder company, you've likely used or at least heard of several of the massively successful beauty brands that they've created or acquired since their conception. Brands like the Estee Lauder brand, Clinique, MAC, La Mer, Bobby Brown, Aveda, Joe Malone London, Tom Ford Beauty, Smashbox, Origins, you get the picture. But this behemoth of a beauty company hasn't always been a household name. Leonard speaks fondly of early memories sitting in his high chair, watching his parents mix beauty creams from their own kitchen. Since that time, Estee Lauder has revolutionized the cosmetic industry in so many ways that it's hard to imagine where we'd be without them. I mean, they were so confident in the quality of their products that they practically invented the practice of giving out samples as a way of promoting their brand. Leonard is a joy to talk with and his story is a great one filled with lots of amazing insight. I could go on and on about Leonard, but let's not waste any more time. Let's get into it. Oh, there he is. <laughs> hey, Leonard, how are you? How are you, Pete? I'm great. Thank you. Great to see you. Hey, thanks. Good to see you, too. Hey, so, Leonard, I want, have you ever done a podcast before? Nope. First time. First one. Yeah. Well, look, at today, it's, I mean, it's a real privilege for me to have Leonard Lauder as a guest on the Nordy Pod. Leonard, welcome, and thanks so much for doing this. Thank you very much, Pete. I love being here and uh, love the whole family. 
Well, you've always been such a fun person for us to know and such an impactful person uh, in the industry. And, um, you know, Leonard, maybe it would be a good way to start for you can just tell the story about how you guys got started in this business, how your mom founded it and how you ended up becoming, you know, part of that and and carrying on that legacy. Well, that's an interesting story. Um, I met a man a number of years ago who had been a high school classmate of my mother And he said she was extraordinary. All she wanted to do was make her girlfriends look beautiful. That's the key thing she always loved. And she would comb out their hair, and then she would take a little smudge of the lipstick and put it on their cheeks to make them look rosier. And she loved it so much. And she had such charm, loved people. That that was in her heart and in her soul. So did she actually have a big, well, she must have a big entrepreneurial thing. I mean, they created something from nothing, right? So how was it that she went from this idea that she liked to make women look beautiful, she had an infectious personality, to actually creating a business? Well, she started to uh, buy some things and slowly but surely started to make creams. And I remember when I was in my high chair, uh, she and my father would cook the creams in the kitchen stove and she would mix them and try them on and try them on to people. And it took a long time because she only wanted to put out the best products. So it's kind of remarkable that, you know, it's not just that she had this idea about making women beautiful and was a salesperson, but she was literally trying to make the products herself? Yes, yes, yeah. Now, she didn't make all the products herself because we didn't have the compounding machinery. But then she and my father decided to go into the business. They had a vision and ambition. And they went to an advertising agency. And the advertising agency said, well, you know, you don't have the money. It's going to cost a lot of money, on and on and on and on. And he sent them away. So what did they do? She always loved her products. And she always had trust in her products. And all she wanted to do was give out samples of her products because she knew that people would come back and buy them. And she was right. So all they did now was make samples, big samples that, that would last six months at a time. Now, that's long enough to say this is a pretty good product. And they gave them out, gave them out at department stores and wherever. And day by day, week by week, month by month, the business started to increase. So this was what, in the 40s? Uh, she started doing this in the late 40s. Uh, right at the end of World War II. And you grew up and in New York, is that right? You guys were there in New York? I grew up in uh, New York City, yeah. Okay. My parents were both born in New York, and I was born in New York. So when she started, what did the beauty industry look like? What, who were the big companies? I, I mean, obviously, these things were sold through department stores, what have you, but how did the industry work, and how did she get to the point where she's producing a product and selling it into these department stores? Well, the big companies were Revlon was number one, Elizabeth Arden was number two, and Helena Rubinstein was number three. And they all had a, a fierce competition with each other. Uh, but I'll tell you an interesting little story. Uh, we were selling a store in Lexington, Kentucky, a store called Waterman's. And the head of the store said, you know something, you should start selling nail polish because I'm sure you can make a great nail polish and we don't like selling Revlon which was the number one brand at the time. 
I said, well, let me have a conversation with Mrs. S.G. Lauder. At that time, I was uh, aging a 21-year-old. <laughs> and I went to see her, and she said, no, 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 I don't want to get started with that guy. She said, now listen, right now, Charles Refson, who's running Revlon, thinks I'm just a cute blonde. If I started to have a nail polish and it looks like it was competing with him, he would kill us. <laughs> I want to stay below the radar. So you're growing up around this. I mean, your parents are literally bootstrapping as an entrepreneurs and creating this company, and you're seeing this play out. Tell us about what your childhood was like and growing up and your interest in the things that you know you wanted to do. Well, I, I grew up with this all around me. And finally, I got myself a driver's license and a little two-door car. And uh, I would then start uh, delivering the packages to department stores or to these shippers or, or whoever. So as time went on, I enlisted in the U.S. Navy and became an officer there at sea, etc. But when I got discharged, I joined the company. Now, I was always interested in marketing. I had a bent for that. But my parents had made the decision that I was going to be the one to make the creams in the factory. The factory, by the way, was the kitchen of, of, of an old restaurant. <laughs> and uh, I didn't want that. So my father, uh, one morning, on a Sunday morning, I came in my parents' bedroom, and they used to read a New York Times. And in those days, they had these big classified sections. And my father said, look under a help wanted for chemists. And I looked under there maybe 50 help wanted chemists, chemists, chemists. He said, now look under the for help wanted for a businessman. <laughs> there was no help wanted for a businessman. He said, you should be a chemist. Uh -huh. But I didn't want to be a chemist. I didn't want to be a chemist. <laughs> and so they had decided that I was going to be the chemist, and I had decided I was going to be the salesman. And so we, we compromised. I became the salesman. <laughs> and I remember I was uh, sitting in the office the first month or two I was there, and uh, someone, a buyer from, from one of our stores, came in to see me. He said, you know something? Uh, you have a product that every time we give a sample, people come back and buy it. And I said, what's that? He said, the product is Youth Do Bath Oil. That product brings 100% people back. I took all the money we had and used it to buy something like maybe 10,000 samples and gave them out in the stores we sold. And that's how we built the company. And then as time went on, I wanted to have a competitor for Estee Lauder, so I decided I'd launch a brand called Clinique. Now, my mother hated the idea of competition. She said, I don't want to do it. But I said, you, you'll own it. She said, okay, I'll call it Estee Lauder's Clinique. I said, you can't call it Estee Lauder's Clinique. She said, I can't call it the Estee Lauder's Clinique because I'm Estee Lauder. I said, you can't call it the Estee Lauder's Clinique because I'm Leonard Lauder. <laughs> and so, so at the end of the day, she agreed. <laughs> and uh, uh, we built the company step by step, sample by sample by sample, customer by customer by customer. And it was an exciting time for me. I'm curious, you know, you talk about this idea with samples. Because, you know, it's amazing. That's a total industry practice now, right? Where everyone gives out samples. Was that a practice that was done by other beauty companies and other department stores, or did you guys invent that? We kind of invented it. 
And they were all saying, ah, S.P. Lauder, they're going to go broke soon. They're giving the business away. <laughs> the more they said we're going broke, the better we did. So I have to tell you a cute story. We made a deal with Vogue magazine. They would say, if you send 50 cents to Vogue, S.P. Lauder will send you a free little bottle of their youth to a bath oil. So people would send in 50 cents, and I would take the hundreds or 200 envelopes home at night to open up all the envelopes and take the names, etc. So people sent cash to you guys in an envelope? That, that's yeah, how yeah. it worked? 50 cents, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so I, I remember having one of those big envelopes with me, and I had to take a girl out for dinner. And so someone said, oh, there's a great Italian restaurant you should go to in New York City. It's called Romeo Salta. I never heard of it, but I went there. I sat there and looked at the menu, and everything was 10 times more expensive than I could ever afford. And the waiter came. I said, well, we're not very hungry, so we'll have one cannelloni for two, and we'll have one of these for two. And he came at the end, he said, would you like to have a cup of coffee for two? (laughs) So so in any event, what happened is that I didn't have the money to pay for the check. I went to the uh, coat check where I had checked this big manila envelope with about 200 envelopes uh, from, from Vogue magazine. I took it and went into the men's room and opened up each one of the envelopes and took out 50 cents. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I came back to, to my day to, uh, it was a half hour late. She said, are you okay? I said, yes, I'm okay. <laughs> and, and building a business with no money is a very interesting experience. Yeah, you know, what's interesting about that letter, and maybe speak to it a little bit, it, it sounds like you didn't come from a place where this was all kind of preordained and this big business was on the tracks, you guys created this and you didn't come from a place of privilege and all kinds of money. I mean, you're you're just trying to make it from, because you think about the legacy of your company now and what the S.A. Lauder company means broadly and it's, it's so hugely successful. It's interesting to think back in a time when it was just a small thing and, you know, you're trying to find a way to scrape up 50 cents. I mean, that's interesting. Yeah. When I joined the company in... Uh, 1958, right after I got out of the U.S. Navy, we were doing $480,000 worth of business. That's all we were doing. We had a little office. Uh, I shared a tiny office with my mother, and it was tiny, tiny, tiny. Uh, She had a a desk there, and I had a little desk near her. And we had one secretary in the next office and three women who walked around the country selling our products. All we did all day is to give out samples to people who came into the store. And we gave out hundreds of them and thousands of them. And they came back again and again and again because the products were really good. Hey, so which stores in New York were your biggest customers at that time? Where did you guys do most of your business? Well, we had started off earlier uh, selling uh, two or three little beauty salons, but my mother made a, a pitch to Saks Fifth Avenue and said, we'll close all of our beauty salons and just sell you exclusively. And they said, okay, we'll do that. Then the next store was Neiman Marcus. And step by step, it was one store at a, at a city at a time. But we had patience. Do it slowly, do it carefully, 
make sure the products are right for everyone. And watching the company grow was so exciting for me. Hey, you know, you're, you're talking about samples, and I remember clearly being in a meeting with your team once, and we were talking about a lot of these upstart beauty companies that get a lot of excitement and a lot of buzz and publicity, and you guys talked about, well, that's all interesting, but what's most interesting in our business, does someone actually come back and buy that same product again? It's one thing to buy it once, it's another thing to come <laughs> back and buy it again and again. And that's it seems like that's what you're talking about with the sampling. Once you got someone into the product, you could have them for perhaps life. Is that how you guys thought right. about it? Exactly, but there was something else though. Uh, you know, when you go into a Nordstrom store, there's someone there selling the products, okay? I used to take the, all the sales reports and read them and write the commission check to the lady who was selling our products. And I wrote them a little note congratulating them, telling them how good they were and how important they were to me. I would sit home at night writing those notes. And those people stayed with us for many, many, many years because someone recognized how good they were. And so one of the things you learned is not only did we have good products, we had good people who knew how to present the products. And then I learned from Mrs. S.G. Lauder, from my mother, how to train people. Uh, we had a sales meeting once where she had one person presenting the product, one person listening. And then after 30 minutes or an hour, you would switch sides and the person selling was going to be the customer, and the person who was the customer was going to be the salesperson. And they had to learn to do the right thing, never sell something that was wrong, and if someone had to bring it back, tell them how happy they were that they came back, and they wanted to make sure that it was right. And our retailers, like Nordstrom, were our partners, not our customers, our partners. We looked at you and everyone who was our, our retailer that there are partners in this. And I used to, I loved the people who had been our retail partners. And I, I'm still in touch with many of them today because uh, we built a business together. Yeah, well, you know, it, it's I love hearing that story about you really don't think about these being different things. The idea that you need great products and you need the people and the service to bring it all together. It's probably why we've gotten along so well over the years because listening to how that worked for you guys sounds like it was much, it was really an organic journey, right? These are things you learned along the way, which is exactly right. what happened with my great-grandfather, my grandfather, my dad, and those generations, they just kind of learn by being face-to-face -face with customers over years that this is the way to do it, that you've you got to have great products, you got to stand behind them, and you got to have people that can deliver that, and that's what makes the whole thing work. And Exactly. Anyway, I love hearing that. So, you know, I remember my dad telling a story when, when we bought Best Apparel and we became more than just a shoe store. He said, and he would say it today if he were here and I asked him, what was the biggest deal that happened for you guys that kind of launched you into being a real department store because you had brands? He said, the biggest deal for us is when we got S.A. Lauder to sell us. That's when we knew we'd arrived and we had a big time brand and that yeah. made us legitimate in our industry. Well, I was honored that he said that because I felt the same way. Because when, when you bought Best Apparel, I said, boy, that's a big change for us. At what point did you feel like this is not just a struggling little company trying to figure out that we actually got something here, and this is a powerful company that with a lot of upside growth potential. Well, I think it was sometime in the 
60s, when a lot of the uh, stores were opening up in, in larger shopping malls. And I remember reading the reports of the people who, who did these promotions. And at different places, they all said the same thing. They said the real surprise to us is suddenly everyone knows who SG Lauder is and everyone wanted our products. So no matter where we went, there were crowds. How do you think they knew about it? Were you running big advertising campaigns? Was, was this no just a word of mouth thing? Just word of mouth. So I got married in 1959 to Evelyn, uh, who, as you know, passed away sadly, but uh, we were married for 51 years. We went to Beverly Hills on our honeymoon, and we had just opened up a store there called Bullock's Wilshire, and in Wilshire Boulevard. And I went there, uh, there was a, a line around the block, and that was so exciting for me, because I saw that on my honeymoon, and then, while I was on my honeymoon, I drove around to different stores, and I worked on my honeymoon. And uh, people couldn't understand that, but business was my life. Estee was my life. And my life was my wife and my children and my business and my partners, retail partners. So that my attachment to the Nordstrom family is incredible because we both grew up together. We're like separated at birth. <laughs> and that's why I have such a, a love for Nordstrom because I did everything. Do you know that, for example, uh, you may remember that you had a store in Alaska. Oh, yeah. And I flew up there just to see the Nordstrom store in Alaska. You did? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have been in every Nordstrom store in the country, including the Nordstrom stores in Canada. And <laughs> well, uh, heck, you just said you're in Alaska, so I believe it. I, I'm sure you have been in all our stores. I don't doubt it. <laughs> Leonard, I got to imagine, at least as I know you, because most of my interactions with you have almost been kind of serendipitous and spontaneous in a store because you were in stores all the time. I mean, I could travel on the country. Oh, well, Leonard Lauder's here today. Well, of course he is because <laughs> he's every place. I mean, talk a little yeah. bit about that. You must have spent a ton of time on the road and really invested in seeing what was happening with your products at the interface of customers and product, right? Well, that's how I learned that the United States of America is a changing demographics. We have to remember that there are different people and different people shop for different things. How do you take a great nation like the United States and break it down into small enough pieces so that you know that what you need to do in Florida is different than what you have to do in Seattle? And it's that challenge of how to deal with the varied demographics and psychographics of America that will make us both more successful. That's not easy. Yeah, I mean, it's in so many ways, the way the internet and all the information has made people the same, a lot of the same influences, I think to your point though, but it's still true that the, the most successful way to go about it is to have localized strategies, right? To meet people where they are. Right, right. I love everyone. There's a lot to love about everyone. And uh, I have a skill that when I meet someone, I look in their eyes, and I know exactly what they are and who they are. And by the way, it's apropos of different things. I don't like emails because <laughs> when, when I send email, you can't see someone's eyes. And years ago, I was having a conversation with one of my key executives and I had his sales manager with me. 
And as we walked away, she said to me, his mouth said yes, but his eyes said no. Just remember that is a way you find out where you are and where you should be going. Learn from who you are and learn from who the people are around you. So as, as you guys were growing and, you know, the 60s and the 70s were amazing time and 80s really in our business because of all yeah. that growth. You mentioned like malls and everything. They were kind of proliferating across the country yeah. and being able to bring the world's best products to people locally and regionally without having to travel to a big downtown store. I'm just interested, like, on your take, what those times were like with all that growth and all that possibility. Well, they're all very exciting. It was like um, I saw a movie where these ladies who came from London went to Italy, and they said, everything that you plant grows. And I felt that everything that we did grew. And we had to be very careful about what we did because we knew if we made a sale— would have to be a sale of a great product to people who were interested. We didn't want to take advantage of this thing. In the, the 60s, in the United States, we call the soaring 60s. And we grew in the 60s and in the 70s and the 80s. And to my way of thinking, the way we ran our company was not just profit, growth. Because if we grew, you grew. Partners have to work that way. If we made money and you didn't, that was wrong. We had to grow together side by side. And that made me feel a kinship with Nordstrom and the Nordstrom family. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, when you're doing this business in the right way, you're paying attention to customers and you evolve naturally as they evolve. And and you talked about that a little bit about demographics and what have you. But one of the things I really admire about you and your company is the sense of curiosity. So when we have meetings, it's not just about you guys telling us what you're going to do. It's a lot about tell us what you're seeing and how we can work on things together. I got to tell you, that's not that way with every single company we meet with. And when you say you guys are partners, I feel that when we meet with you guys. And I think you're a great representation of what it means to have successful partnerships in our industry. Well, there's a saying that that I've used, which is silly, but I think it sums up our point of view and my point of view. I've got two ears to listen and one mouth to talk with. If God wanted us to talk more than listen, he would have given us two mouths. So whenever I meet with the people at Nordstrom, I listen to what they needed, what they needed. If you listen, you win. If you talk all the time, you don't win. So listen. <laughs> I like that. If you can't listen, you can't learn. Yeah. Hey, tell me what it's been like for you. And, and maybe it's it's more about what it's like for your kids and grandkids. But growing up attached to a company where your name is literally on the company, we have the shared experience. My name is attached to our company. Yeah, yeah, what, yeah. What's it like for you as you travel around, you've seen the, the growth and success of your company and that your name is literally attached to that. I mean, there's a lot of wonderful things that come with that. And there's a lot of probably things that aren't as wonderful. But tell me what it's been like for you having your name being part of that company. Well, that's good and bad. If your name is attached to the company, invariably someone says, you know what? I bought this product from somewhere and I'm not happy with it. And I said, okay, give it back to me and I'll get you something else, okay? And then the other people from the other side said, I want a job. I want a a job for my daughter, my job for my son, et cetera. That's another issue. Fame is a two-way street. 
it's not great because it's often a burden. And so I remember walking into uh, a store once and someone says, oh, I recognize your face. You're famous, aren't you? I said, I wish I were, lady, and, and, and I left. <laughs> so I, I am not famous. Well, you're, you're pretty I, famous. You're kind of famous. Well, I kind of try to downplay it because being famous may go to your head. I'm, I'm the same guy that I was 30 or 40 years ago, and I think that's my key. Yeah. Hey, you know, I, I've got a, an interesting memory. We were at a dinner once, and you're so engaging. You get people, well, first of all, you're a good listener, but part of that has to be about you can get people to open up and talk. And I remember yeah. you stood up and you said, okay, everyone's going to go around the table and say something about themselves that, that people around the table wouldn't know about you to kind of break the ice and get talking. Do you remember doing things like that? Yeah. I remember you I did, I did, kind of being at dinners and, and I I can't, I think my story was I stood up, I go, I'm thinking, what the heck am I going to say? And I think what I said was, I've never actually had a cavity before. So that was my interesting thing about myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've had a cavities before, but it's, it's amazing because by doing that, I was saying to everyone there, we are all human beings and different from each other. Let's respect the differences. And it, once you can teach people to respect the differences of the people around them, we have a happier life and a happier nation. And that's one of the things I worry about. And so I kind of feel that uh, I'm on a mission to make America a friendlier place and a warmer place and one with great ambition and one where we love to work. Yeah, maybe you could expand on that a little bit, what you feel your sense of responsibility as a big corporation to actually espouse values that do something besides just a commercial outcome, that they actually make an impact on people. Talk about what you feel is your guys' sense of responsibility to have these kinds of values that just make our communities better. Uh, let's say I start off with women. We have 75 to 80% of our employees are women. I love women. They've made up the, the core of our family. And uh, we can hire people who are talented from companies where they say the guys are too pushy and, and the guys won't listen to them. So women are number one. And number two, because I enlisted in the military, I feel very patriotic. I love this nation. And I want to find this way to keep the nation happy and together. I don't like the idea of people from the right or the left not getting along together. We need to get along because if we fight each other, I'm quoting Abraham Lincoln, a nation divided can no longer stand. So we can't be a nation divided. We have to be a nation together. So I look at uh, what we're doing right now, Pete, is saying we are, you and I, represent two ends of a spectrum that comes together. People from the West and people from the East, people who have strong heritage, Scandinavian heritage, and I would, we have a strong Central European heritage, but we all are American. And what I love about Nordstrom and the Nordstrom family, you are American. That's what you stand for. And what you've done, you should be very proud of. And I think what I've done 
I'm very proud of also. So tell me a little bit about philanthropy and how that's been an important part of your company. I know, you know, through the ways that you guys donate money for different causes and, you know, again, how your company shows up. Talk about where that comes from. Does that come from your mother or from you? Or how did that really come to be a thing for your company? Well, it comes more from me because uh, I had the money. Uh, my parents were struggling and they're working so hard. Uh, there are three areas that I'm, I'm interested in. Alzheimer's, and we founded the Alzheimer's Drug Discovery Foundation. And in my lifetime coming up, we're going to have a cure or prevention on a cure for Alzheimer's. Breast cancer research. Because of my late wife, Evelyn, we're interested in breast cancer. And there are pills coming along now. Breast cancer will be a thing of the past. And also, one of my passions right now is the nation is short on nurses. And so I've started to open up different schools to give nurse practitioners a chance. So I'm interested in health. I support a lot of hospitals also. For example, in Seattle, you have a place called the Fred Hutchinson Clinic. Yep. They're able to do things that no other hospital in America can do. One of my ex-employees came to me in tears. She said, my child has such and such a disease, and the only place that can cure him is the Fred Hutchinson Clinic. I said, okay, we're supporting the Fred Hutchinson. I'll get him in there. And he came back a year or two later. He said, you saved my child's life. And I am grateful to, to what you've done in Seattle and grateful for the fact that I've been able to use my contacts to save people's lives. That's great. Yeah, you guys, I mean, particularly, I think about the breast cancer outreach that you've done in support of, of that cause. I yeah. mean, you, I, I really feel like you guys were real leaders with that. And that was, you know, that impacts so many people's lives. And it impacts mine. My, my, as, as you know, my mother passed away from breast cancer. So that's, I applaud you for that one. I think it's, you guys have made a big impact in the country there. But thank you, Pete. But I want to tell you something. No one dies from breast cancer they die from the metastasis that comes from breast cancer. And so what we're looking for is early detection. Don't be afraid to detect something in yourself and don't be afraid of going to the doctor. We like seeing people alive. And since we've started the Breast Cancer Research Foundation, which was started by my wife, Evelyn, breast cancer deaths have been lowered 48%, okay, 48%. I feel very proud of that. I'd like to get to 100%. Yeah, no, I, I think about that a lot, too, because you know, my mom passed away in the mid-'80s. And to your point, given all the developments and care and research and medicines and stuff, I, I'm pretty sure if that had happened today, she wouldn't have died. She would have made it. That's correct. So I'm planning right now to live to 100 so I want to invite you to my 100th birthday party. <laughs> I'll be there. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> promise me? It's a deal. I promise. Okay. You got it. Okay. And you know, it, it, that reminds me, you talk about <laughs> inviting us to stuff. One of my memories of you guys, it's so great, so wonderful and gracious about who you guys are as a family, as a company, is when we opened our store in New York, gosh, what was it, three years ago, <laughs> right, just yeah, pre-pandemic, yeah. that you invited us to your home, my family, your entire yeah, family yeah. was there, all my yeah. family that traveled was part of, we were all there and you guys were so gracious and nice just to welcome us to the city. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, it was a real special memory for us. Well, look, we are family. We're two families doing the same thing. We both have the same ethics, both have the same ambitions. We are all wanting to do well and do better. 
And I believe that joining the family that way just makes us feel that we are not alone. And that's why I think the Lauders and the Nordstroms are two families that are joined at the hip and maybe always be that way, Pete. Well, I hope all your success rubs off on us because you guys have really been remarkable. So I, I want to wrap it up, Leonard. I, I could listen to you all day. It's been great. And I, I really enjoy talking with you like I always do. I mean, you're such a good guy and you've, you've got such interesting insights and you come from such a genuine place. I, I just want to thank you for being a part of this. It's a real privilege for me to know you and to have known you and your family and your company for years. And uh, I just want to thank you for all that you've done to help Nordstrom and kind of what you just do really for our industry. You're, you're a good guy, Leonard. Thanks so much. Pete, I feel the same about you and your family. So I send you a kiss. I can't kiss you through this, but I send you a kiss and a handshake. Take care now. <laughs> you got it. I look forward to seeing you soon. Thanks so much, Leonard. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Now we're going to switch gears and talk with Gregory Clark, a super motivated salesperson working in our men's shoe department in New York. Clark has been able to exceed even his own expectations of what's possible by remaining humble and listening to the good advice of successful people around him. He's discovered an approach to sales, which is a theme around here, focusing less on a transaction and more on creating lasting relationships with customers. So, Gregory Clark. Yes. I'm really happy you're willing to talk to us. Gregory Clark, who goes by Clark, so that's we'll make that uh, acknowledgement right here at the outset. But um, I'm really interested to know, you know, for us here being relatively new in New York, and it's such a big bet for Nordstrom coming here on a big stage and the huge investment we've made in the store. And when I was talking to your managers about it, I said, you've got to talk to Clark. He's, he's such a great example of what, a, what an excellent salesperson looks like at Nordstrom. So I'm, I'm happy to get a chance to talk to you, but I want to start by just, you know, tell me how it was that you came to work at Nordstrom here a few years ago when we opened up. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for the opportunity just to speak with you and be on your podcast. I truly appreciate it. Um, thank you for signing my checks. Uh, <laughs> So I, can, you bet. <laughs> so I can keep my lights on at home. I appreciate that. Uh, so I came uh, to the Nordstrom brand, the Nordstrom family, about four and a half years ago. So what were you doing before you had this job? I was working for Kohan. So okay. I worked for Kohan for about eight years. I was the top seller for about six. So um, you were a proven, successful shoe salesperson. I thought so. Oh, until I'm I, sure you were. In, until I came here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so why do you say that? Was, was it different here, like what we expected from you? Or? Absolutely. I think that... The DNA of the Nordstrom brand is more relationship-based. I think in my entire career working until I had the opportunity to come on board here, I was focusing so much on transactions. It wasn't until I received the proper training at Nordstrom, I noticed, oh, anyone can sell anyone a product, but can you sell yourself to establish a lifelong relationship? And so has that really paid off for you in that you've oh, got I, now a whole bunch of personal customers that you've gained their trust over time? Absolutely. Do you have any um, 
favorite kind of customer stories of when you since you've been working here of something that happened that was interesting or fun or special? One of my most memorable stories that I have here, a gentleman came in looking for an active sneaker for his job because he commuted a lot for his job. He never told me what he did. So I started with an Echo sneaker, a Mephisto sneaker, a Kohan, a Nike, and a Dior sneaker. Um, That's a selection right yeah, there. <laughs> I showed him everything. So he said, I like this last one that you showed me, this Dior sneaker. Um, how much is this? I, I said, it's 1100 he said, wow. He said, you, Did he fall out of his chair? He said, you, he said, you really set me up to show me the best one last. I said, I didn't. I showed you a selection. You're just picking which one you feel is the best one. He said, can you do that in other departments? Can you leave shoes? I said, absolutely. Took him around the whole store. He, he came in for active sneaker. I sold him something from each part of the store. It ended up being around 13 grand. This guy happened to be the Tony Award winner for the show Hamilton. His name is Leslie Odom. He later reached out to me, flew me out to L.A. before COVID, offered me a job to be his stylist. No way. <laughs> uh, Will Seabolt, the current manager, said, you better take this. You take this job. I turned it down because... I'm glad you turned it down. I'm glad you're still here. <laughs> I turned it down because I'm big on when I commit to something, I want to see it through. And I... At the time, I wanted to be the, the first person at Nordstrom out of the shoe department to sell $2 million. How much did you sell last year, Clark? Uh, last year, I sold um, a little under a million because I took some time off and, and traveled. Yeah. Um, but the year before that, I did just under $1.3 million. Okay. Yeah. So I plan on doing this year around $1.5, one6 That's a lot of shoes. Uh, another great one that I have... Two gentlemen came in and kind of told me <laughs> verbatim, I love shoes. I have a lot of shoes. I said, okay, I sell a lot of shoes. I have a lot of <laughs> shoes too. Let me bring something out. So I brung out a lot, a lot of shoes. <laughs> but these gentlemen uh, end up taking pretty much all of the shoes that I brought out and said I had amazing taste in shoes. I later, um, so I have a, a system that I do. So Mr. Nordstrom comes in. I sell you a tie. I'll reach out the same day. Thank you, Mr. Nordstrom, for coming in. It was a pleasure having the opportunity to service you. You're going to love the tie. I'm sure you'll be able to dress it up a lot of different ways. 14 days after uh, follow-up again, how's the tie working out? What'd you wear it with? Feel free to send me pictures of what you wore it with. They usually love that. So they'll send pictures. I'll say, well, I have some great trousers that I think will be amazing with that. I'll take the same tie, I'll style it together, I'll send it to them. Oh, that looks great. You should come in and try it on. When you come in and try it on, I have shoes to match with it. And then I sell. So I did that with these. Did you learn all this stuff on your own? I mean, there's no way we this, we taught you this. This is the kind of stuff you learn by doing it over years. So some of it, yes. So about two years after the men's store was open, we had a gentleman in tailored clothing. He was hired to be our made-to-measure specialist, so extremely intelligent. Uh, his name is Dwayne Robertson. So one day, Will Seabolt asked him, so what do you think about the shoe team? And he said, well, this shoe team has a lot of work. They can sell shoes, but anyone can sell shoes. And your top guy, Clark, man, he, he has a lot of work. He said this while I was standing there. So I looked at him. He's 
He's like 6'5". He's huge. You guys see I'm a smaller guy. <laughs> so I looked up at him and I said, what do you mean? He said, you sell a lot of shoes, but I don't see you taking information to follow up or reach out. And I said, what's that? Like, why would I need to do that? And he said, let me show you what we do in tailored clothing after we service our customers. So he showed me. So I say, you do this after every customer? That's a lot of work. Hmm. He said, just try it before anniversary. So... I tried it and I save a lot of notes and I save everything and I put it in my phone. So before anniversary, everyone was looking in our personal book to see what customers they had. They had Nordstrom cards and what customers can they reach out for for certain product. He said, you see how everyone is looking in personal book and they're looking for papers. Everything that you saved is in your phone. Open your phone. Let me show you. So I just would type in Nordstrom card holders and every customer still to this day that has a Nordstrom card, I can pull them up in my phone just by putting the two words Nordstrom card and it all comes up. And then I'll say designer customer. Everyone that's shop designer, I have that suit customer. I have that. So he said, okay, now I want you to reach out to all of these customers. You already have the notes. So that one time, I had more appointments than everyone in the shoe department. It is a lot of, lot of work, but I feel like this is the way that we build the Nordstrom brand because I feel like we are the best at service, but going above and beyond is about not only when the client is in front of you, but what are you doing to stay in front of the client? So I just constantly reach out. And when we were closed during a pandemic, all of my customers, I reached out and checked on their families and just said, how are you mentally? How are you physically? How are you holding together? And when we opened, a lot of those people came back and shot with me in a way that it was really overwhelming to me because I didn't think that I wasn't doing it to get a sale when we opened. I was just just caring about customers. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's the way the Nordstrom family built the business. You know, you're nice to say that. I, I can tell you right now, you're a better salesperson than all the Nordstroms <laughs> for my generation. I mean, you know, you've taken that spirit and you've applied your, you know, your experiences to it and your energy to it and your ideas. And I'm just so impressed to hear about, you know, your, your technique and how it's such an authentic part of who you are. That's probably why it works so well. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You heading back over there? To yeah. The, so do, you, do you want to sell me something, Clark? I got to buy a couple of things. You want to sell me something today? Let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I know if I may regret this, I may end up buying way more stuff than I need. But I do need a couple of things. Okay. All you right? want to do it today? Let's or do it you right wanna... now. Okay, if you let's do it right do now? It. Yeah, let's, right, do, let's it. do it. I got another cool story to tell you guys. Yeah. going to blow you away. So <laughs> I was actually off today. Well, that's the show. We're really glad you're with us on this journey, and we hope you keep listening. The easiest way to do that is to subscribe to the Nordy Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please take a minute to give us a like, a share, and a review so other people can find this thing too. For more information about the show, head to nordstrom.com slash nordypodcast, where you can listen to episodes, see upcoming guests, and learn about how to get involved. We really want to hear about your experience with Nordstrom. So if you have a story about how you've received great service or even bad service, send us an email to nordypodcast at nordstrom.com. You can also give us a call and leave a voicemail, and you just might hear your voice on a future episode of the show. That number is 206-594-0526. 
So don't be shy, drop us a line and be part of the Nordy Pod. And be sure to tune in next time when I sit down with the former WNBA star of the Seattle Storm, Sue Bird. The WNBA is an interesting spot because for a really long time, I felt we were lacking in this like cool factor. And we became just the butt of a joke. We became not cool. Even the fact that people would go around saying, oh, who watches the WNBA? Nobody goes to these games. And then I pull up to Climate Pledge and I'm like, wow, there's 19,000 people here. Who's saying that nobody watches this? That right there has been a big, big, big hurdle for us that we're finally getting over. Now, I got to admit, you guys, I get to talk to a lot of interesting and famous people. I was a little bit nervous to talk to Sue Bird. She is a big deal in this town. I'm a basketball fan. She's been an amazing ambassador for the sport and has accomplished so much. You're going to love this conversation. So join us next time on The Nordy Pod. Mm-hmm.